This week's episode is brought to you by Bloomadora, and they have a great new offer this week, so stay tuned for that. Bloomadora has set the standard for enterprise-grade integration for IT monitoring, and they'll seamlessly stream metrics and logs from all kinds of different sources right into the monitoring platform that you already use. It's great to have all those metrics and all the data sets, but they can be siloed off from each other, and it can be difficult to draw conclusions about how the components of your system are interacting with each other and where the pain points are. And of course, you also have to configure monitoring agents across all kinds of different platforms and operating systems, and it's a real pain to set them up and maintain them. Bloomendora's solution to this is called BindPlane. It takes in metrics and logs from over 150 different sources. They can be on-premises, hybrid cloud, or multi-cloud. And it feeds them all right into your favorite monitoring tool. Things you already use, like Google Stack Driver, New Relic, Azure Monitor, Wavefront, and Datadog. This allows you to see how all the components of your stacks are interacting in real time, and you can draw relationships between all the different metrics that previously had been siloed off from one another. The end result is a single pane of glass view into the performance of your entire stack, and you don't have to spend time configuring monitoring agents or developing your own custom integrations. It also adds dimensionality to your data, allowing you to dig down and pinpoint performance issues faster than ever before. Now, their new deal this week is if you have a Google Cloud Platform account and you activate the free BindPlane integration, they'll give you $200 of Google Cloud Platform credit. Just head on over to bloomadora.com compute and you can redeem that. Turn information into insight with Bloomadora. And they just drop a big thing on a trampoline. That always makes you think of that YouTube channel. <laughs> the guys drop stuff. You mentioned this last week. I, I did, yeah, because of the clap. But um, what, uh, what's what been happening this week? What's been? Let's just get into it. Uh, so California has no power. It's a big, big topic right now. It's a good thing you have your solar-powered <laughs> prepper development station. My solar-powered development station. So what's, what's even better is that... I very, very rarely with Design Collective have like a deadline day where something needs to go out the door. And uh, so a week from today actually uh, is when they just call it market. So basically there's like a few markets per year, but a market basically is just an industry gathering of designers, furniture retailers, furniture manufacturers, etc. And so, yeah, we're just launching a new promotional campaign uh, for market specifically. And uh, so they had a designer redesign our um, marketing website or sales website and things like that. So um, I'm basically, you know, just kind of rebuilding, reskinning this thing, new copy, new content, new icons, all that stuff, new color scheme. Uh, Cause eventually we're going to be changing our color scheme on DK.com to have more than three colors. Um, so I, like I said, I really have a deadline, but this one is a deadline because Next week, we have some print materials going out that are linking back to the website, and the website should probably match the print materials that are going out. Oh, shoot. So it doesn't look like a totally separate, right? So yeah, I basically have a deadline for this. And then I start hearing about, oh, there's going to be rolling blackouts. And then on top of all that, uh, they keep changing it. So we'll, there's a couple of Twitter accounts that I follow, and so I'll look and they're like, oh, yeah, so for this area... It's supposed to be, you know, blacking out around this time. And then, oh, never mind. It's actually this afternoon. Never mind. It's actually this evening. Never mind. It's actually. So there's no consistency with when stuff is supposed to happen. So uh, that's, it's nice that I have my solar panel and my, my tethering. So if I really need to, I can, I can uh, tether to my phone and, and keep my laptop charged to get this thing out the door. But it's kind of funny how the timing works on this. That's pretty rough. I mean, assuming that cell towers are even up for 
any amount of time after that too. Who knows? They have been so far. So so this morning I was coming back from training, uh, which is kind of funny too because people were coming uh, coming to class so that they, they could hit a shower at the gym next door uh, before going to work because they didn't have power at home. Um, but so when we got, when we came home from training, uh, there was no power like in any of the street, the, the, the traffic lights on the way home. So traffic was a nightmare. People were just, apparently people don't know how to use a stop sign or, or to treat like the intersections with when the lights are out as a stop sign. So people were just hauling through, people were like turning, turning, uh, left from the outside lane. It was just chaos. And, um, so luckily when I got home, I think we were like a block away from where that specific grid line ended. So we still had power in the house, but it's been a very interesting couple of days. Well, if I lose you, I'll just, I'll just soldier on and do the rest of the episode by myself. Just soldier on. Yep. Just do a monologue, perform, just, perform your monologue. Just me and Bucky. It'd be pretty one-sided. <laughs> right. Uh, Bucky has a lot to say, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's been an interesting, interesting week, but I'm pretty, you know, I'm feeling pretty secure in the fact that I have the sun. I'm harvesting the sun's energy, as you said uh, to me. So this thing will go out on time. That's great. And uh, man, what's what's the path going to look like for moving forward for redoing the actual site itself? I mean, because you got to, it's all like a whole mix. Now that, I, now that I've seen the, uh, seen how the, the soup is made or what's that expression? Oh, seen how the sausage, the sausage. is made. Uh, looking into the source of the DK front end and realizing all the different mishmash of style, class name conventions that are in there. Yeah. Uh, what What's that going to look like for doing the app when you uh, get to that point? Oh, you mean like pulling the new content? Like, yeah, the re- new styles and stuff over? Yeah. yeah. So the goal is to, and we're sort of in the middle of this. Drew's actually working on this, but we're basically dropping... Uh, I can't remember what year it was. It was like maybe 2016. Like before I started working at DK, when I was at Octopus, uh, my coworker Chris and I started working on uh, a a utility utility based like a class based CSS library. Um, and so what's in DK was sort of built. So I actually got moved to a different project, so I couldn't finish it. But DK was built using that, uh, and that's. It's just sort of existed up until now, and it's kind of a interesting little library. But basically, the goal is um, stripping that out and replacing those with Tailwind. So, luckily, it's it's pretty close. So the design is not going to be translated one to one when translating to when when cop you know like switching over to Tailwind. But honestly, that's not a huge deal. Um, so the goal is to drop the custom CSS thing, pull in Tailwind, uh, and at that point. Um, the new marketing site, because our, our marketing site's like a totally different domain and everything, that's going to be on Tailwind. The company blog is going to be on Tailwind, and then the app will be using Tailwind. So at that point, what we can do is um, start tweaking some colors so I can add in the brand new color scheme and start swapping classes, basically. So I think it'll be pretty smooth. It'll be a lot of, you know, maybe regex searching and replacing and stuff, but I don't think it'll be honestly too painful because it's not like... It's not like I can go in and, and, you know, if I change a class on this page, it'll break something else in the app somewhere else, right? That's sort of the, the benefit or one of the benefits of this class-based setup. Um, but that's the plan anyway is, is I'm using Tailwind on all the new stuff and Tailwind is in the app right now. We're just not totally done uh, replacing the old class, uh, the old library that we were using. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if that makes sense, you made a really good point that 
because of the class-based nature of it, you can kind of just go along one file at a time and, and just slowly do it. You don't have to go all in on trying to fix everything at once without breaking it. It's interesting. Right. And in the case that there's some CSS or something needed, that something needed to be done that wasn't really a good fit for class-based CSS, those styles are just in the view component itself. So that's also like, okay. I mean, yeah, they have some styles spread around, but that's also okay because if I just nuked the old, the old, um, you know, if I if we get moved our tailwind and I just nuke the old uh, library that we're using, it's not going to break any of that custom stuff in the view components themselves. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the plan. I've been trying to use all the tailwind styles on the DK views that I've been creating. Mm-hmm. All two or three of them. <laughs> it's all backend stuff. Doesn't really matter. But I've really uh, made really good progress on the DK stuff this week. I, uh, I blew through my hourly budget in about a day, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> or my weekly budget, I should say. And uh, but it's I'm pretty I'm really really happy with how things are turning out with this new inventory management stuff. I mean, I'm excited to see it. One of the I guess one of the cool things are like one of the situations that made me feel validated in in deciding. All right, we're gonna move everything to Tailwind was. You said, all right, how should this, you know, like, what do you want me to do? And I was like, all right, well, Tailwind's in the project. You're like, say no more. I know I know Tailwind already. <laughs> and uh, you just went off to the races. Like, I didn't have to have a walkthrough of this custom library that we're using. I didn't have to, we didn't have, we didn't have more than like a 30 second conversation about it, really. Yeah. It's the beauty of like frameworks, right? <laughs> yeah. Shared, uh, shared knowledge, shared language. Yeah. I felt pretty good. And I mean, our current, our current sales website is using Statomic, which has worked okay. I mean, the idea was that we were going to have people be able to log in, change content and they don't. Uh, so <laughs> what I'm doing is I'm just rebuilding it with Nuxt. And eventually if we need a CMS, we can just toss a headless CMS on it or something. Uh, but yeah, I'm just using Nux to build a static website for this thing and probably just throw it on Netlify or something to make it simple. So really our, our technologies, like our entire front end technology will just be Nux.js for everything. Sweet. Yeah. It's interesting how your stack has gotten smaller over time. I like that. I've been trying really hard to, to think how, like think about how we can keep it small and how we can reduce dependencies. Like Statomic is great. It's a good piece of software. Um, in and it work like it works well. It's easy to style and, and everything like that. It's easy to kind of build out. But it was easy for me because I have a history of using it in projects. Uh, when I was doing consulting at Octopus, we used Statomic a lot. So for someone like Drew to come in, and if I if I needed him to do something on the, the sales website, he'd have to learn Statomic. But he already knows Nux because he's working on the front end. So now I can just say, all right, well I need this done over here. We use Nux, and he's already reasonably familiar with the architecture. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's a very good goal to have. And like you said, it gets the job done. So why <laughs> why bother with having right. two tools to, to take care of that? And ar- arguably, like, Nuxt is the way more flexible option anyways. So, you know, I mean, you can you can still generate static pages with Nuxt, right? <laughs> but you can add sure. all the dynamic functionality later if you needed to. Right, yeah. And, and then you can have it, you can have it, like you said, it could start as a static website and it can boot up you know, the client side JS and run stuff. So for example, um, we, on, on the static side of things, we have a couple of custom plugins that I wrote in PHP to work with Pipedrive, which is one of our, is basically our CRM uh, and, and, and uh, MailChimp. So 
that was okay. Like write, like writing those in PHP weren't difficult, but I'm not a PHP programmer. And so I, I would feel much more comfortable having some custom stuff like that done on the Nux side because I'm really comfortable with Nux and I'm way more comfortable with JavaScript than PHP. So, you know, we're again, just sort of like removing another dependency. In this case, it's a language uh, from, from our stack. So, you know, replacing the pipe drive, actually in looking at the designs, I don't even think we need that plugin anymore because we're using intercom for more of that stuff anyway. So, you know, but if I had to rewrite that stuff, I could do it way faster and feel way better about it in doing it in Nux than, than trying to build my own static plugin. Looks like Nux 3 is going to be on the horizon here some point soon, huh? I think so. Yeah. I haven't checked the roadmap out at all for that, but um, I'm working on updating our app to Nux 2.10, I think is the latest release. So I have a branch uh, our, our front end app, I have a branch where Nux 2.10, everything's been upgraded there. I just haven't merged it yet and it seems great. I don't know. I haven't had any issues, like no issues at all. Yeah. It's been my experience with doing those upgrades as well. And luckily so far, uh, I haven't had any very minor conflicts merging, <laughs> merging in your develop branch into my feature branch. I was really worried about that because I've, I've seen, oh, man, it's horror stories of the working at Agilent and just like the software, they're having so many different teams we're getting so many different branches and having to reconcile that all before a release was always a nightmare i mean the guys just sitting there spending days just resolving merge conflicts right trying to figure out like what oh man what how things worked and it was a real breakdown of like it really brought that that branching model to its breaking point almost so uh yeah i was a little worried but <laughs> it turns out we're not touching all of the same files it's totally fine it's uh, it's not a problem. It hasn't, yeah, it hasn't been a problem. I mean, even when you showed up, we we uh, we had mixed formatted the entire project and checked that in on develop. So that was uh, if that would have caused a problem, if anything would have caused a problem, it would have been that. So yeah, it's been pretty pretty smooth sailing so far. So what else uh, has been going on over there? <sighs> Let me think about it. What's been going on over here? Just like I, I feel like I, I'm on the verge of finishing two projects, and they're just I'm in the last. I'm in the last 20% of the last 20% of the, you know, the last 20%. So they're just sort of dragging <laughs> on. Uh, but they're they're getting close. Zeno's uh, release cycle? Yeah, basically. Uh, I've been using repo.stream a lot, though, now that I feel like I really understand it and know how to use it well. So I've been, I've been streaming lots of things, which has been awesome. Dude, this has been the week. This has been the week of streaming things. Really? Yes, for, for me as well. There's a lot of overlap, but I want to hear about yours first. Well, I mean, so one of the integrations we're doing, they don't have a tech team. So basically what I'm doing is building a couple of CSVs for them to import and then scheduling rebuilds on a weekly basis for them. And uh, right now in the production, one of the CSV files is hitting around 50 megabytes, which isn't like massive, 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 but it's going to keep growing. It's not going to get any smaller. And uh, so... In using repo.all or, you know, not streaming the data, uh, what I thought what the problem would be would actually be pushing that file to S3. So I was I was working with like trying to chunk it into five megabyte chunks because, again, I think we talked about a few weeks ago, the S3 has some limitations where if you're going to do a multi-part upload, the smallest chunk has to be five megabytes. You can't have anything smaller than that. Um, so I really thought the biggest like memory issue uh, would be sending this thing to S3. And and then, well, on develop, I was finding out that it was do, like increasing my RAM usage by like two point five times 
on develop with a much smaller uh, CSV. I think it was maybe like a 20 megabyte CSV that I was building for testing and switching it to repo.stream. It dropped the, uh, it dropped the RAM usage to, I think it taps out at 50 megabytes RAM usage increase. Uh, and that includes uploading this thing to S3. So I thought that was going to be like the bottleneck because it's going to have to uh, take the whole binary in memory before it sends it to S3, but apparently it's fine. So really what the the big memory problem was was all of the preloads happening at once up front while it was building the list. Did you also find out that under development it was worse performance-wise than in production? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know. And so we think that was because of uh, debug Debugging mode, basically. Debugging mode, the logging, because production doesn't log all the SQL queries uh, to build the list. Yeah, it, it's very, very much faster on product. It's almost like strangely fast. So when I when I run the, so I haven't I haven't set up the scheduler yet to rebuild these because we're still kind of ironing out some details. So when I type the command hit enter, so I tunnel into tunnel into Heroku and run a command hit enter. It's nearly instantaneous for everything except for the product manifest. Uh, and it's like, could that actually have worked? It was so fast, and I hate that. It kind of blows my mind. It's so fast. Yeah, it feels like it feels like you did something wrong. Yeah. Um, what else have I been doing? Uh, so I'm on Mac Mac OS Catalina. Uh, haven't had any issues there. I did see a tweet giving a heads up, like, "Hey, heads up! Remember to run Xcode select install." And so I did that right away. And ever since then, it's been fine. Everything's been great. Oh, dude, that bites that bites me every time. We manage a whole every time fleet of of Mac Minis remotely, and occasionally we'll we'll do an OS upgrade remotely, and then yeah, next time I freaking log back in, I have to run Homebrew or I have to just use something. Yep, always have to always have to VNC in, click that stupid install button. What a pain. Yeah, what a pain that I can't do that just with with a command line. Got to so, got to click the button. So it's been great. After after that, uh, I haven't had any issues, no bugs. I hadn't had to even, you know, like I ran mix compile and held my breath. It was fine. Uh, NPM run dev, it was fine. Um, even trash node modules and reinstalled everything, and it was fine. So uh, pretty pretty happy about that. Uh, so I've been using Sidecar, the the new Catalina feature. Uh, if you have a certain iPad, you can basically use the iPad as uh, an external display. And I've used an app called Duet in the past to do this, and it worked okay. Uh, but Sidecar is super smooth, even over Wi-Fi. So it's wireless. Um, I go up to my AirPlay menu, click on the iPad, and suddenly I have a desktop on the iPad. And it's, it's like I said, it's smooth. It's, that's so great. My mom, my mom's been doing the same thing. She keeps sending me pictures like, look what I'm doing. And she's got like a presentation <laughs> on one screen and the show note or, you know, the notes for the presentation on the other. And I, what I didn't realize is that it shows the touch bar mm-hmm. at the bottom, which is interesting because now you can have an iMac with a touch bar. Yep. It's really strange. Uh, I have the, the very, very oldest iMac model that supports this luckily. So nice. late 2015 iMac. So, uh, I am looking forward to trying it out once I build up the uh, confidence to do the upgrade. You said it went fine, but it's uh, it's not enough data points for me. Sorry. Uh, it took a while uh, for me, but yeah, it's been it's been mostly fine. Um, yeah, it does show the touch bar. You can turn that off. There's also a little toolbar that you can have shown too. So um, if you have like a smart keyboard or whatever for your iPad, you can type on on the the screen that's on 
on your iPad. Uh, but you can also do like swipe typing, which is kind of funny. And, and there's like modifier keys. So it has a way for you to hold down command or option or whatever, uh, on the, on the screen. I just turned both of those off cause I don't really use them, but they're there and it's kind of neat. And the other thing is that you can use your pencil as a pointer device, but it's, I haven't figured out how to scroll a window with it yet, so I can highlight and click on things with my pencil, but I can't scroll the window on because my- <laughs> the scroll bars are hidden automatically, right? Yeah, yeah, they're not there, so I just don't. I just don't do that. But other than that, it's been great. So, or how do you hover um, over something if you want a tooltip? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's sort of it's, yeah, sort of weird. It feels like some sort of uncanny valley, you know, like touch friendly thing that doesn't quite work right. Uh, but I've been using it so. Uh, I got some, you know, I got the designs from the designer. And so I put those on the iPad. And so I have half of my screen is the editor. Half of my screen is the browser that's being, you know, live reloaded. And then I have the design that I'm working from on my iPad screen. So I've been playing a lot of Destiny 2 lately with the new expansion and everything. And uh, there's a really great third party, I call it an app, but it's not an app. It's a web app uh, called Destiny Item Manager, which lets you manage your entire inventory for your whole character and swap things in and out and like do all that stuff without having to go through the menu system in the game and do presets and has all this awesome great you know functionality searching filtering blah 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 so when i'm playing destiny i just prop my ipad up uh of the keyboard just below the monitor right just in front of me so it's yep. keyboard ipad monitor and so i can just reach over and just just twiddle stuff if i need to and that's really 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 uh compelling experience so i'm looking forward to just having sidecar just plopped right in front of me and just then i can put like slack on it or discord or uh you know just just stuff that maybe in a terminal like i don't know it's just something that i don't yeah, really so, really too much care about i don't know what the resolution is going to look like but it looks good man it looks really it's it's smooth it's super smooth even like i said even over a wireless connection uh one thing i do is i put um observer on it if i'm if i'm messing around with stuff when i want to profile some things and develop uh, that's a really good idea yeah so so observer, you know, the is is you know, basically it's the what's the word I'm thinking of? It allows you to to see for anyone that doesn't know, it allows you to see like all your performance metrics and your RAM usage and and RAM allocation and all that stuff of any Earlink app that you have running. So uh in in an IEX section you can type colon observer dot start and it pops open that window. So I just put that window and basically I just have live updating charts of my development environment. So if I'm doing something and I see RAM usage spike. So for me, it's sort of like flame graphs, I guess, or it's almost like a, uh, a sanity checker. I'll be clicking around and watch for anything glaring to happen. And that's been really helpful, just kind of having it there. Can you have multiple sidecars? Like, could I have an iPad and iPad mini? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> to be determined. Yeah, but it's been it's been cool. I so I normally have stuff like so if I'm on my computer, I'll have Slack up on my iPad next to it, and instead of on my computer. But I've just been using Sidecar instead for other things. Like I said, Observer, you, I can't get Observer on my iPad unless I install the web version, which I don't really want to do. Uh, so yeah, it just it works it works great. Just kind of hanging out over there. Uh, the other neat thing uh, that I do with it is that IntelliJ has all these windows, right? So it has um, like a database window, it has test runner window, it has terminal window and all that stuff. So normally they're just docked into the into the IntelliJ window itself, or you can change them to display as a separate like a separate app window. And so what I'll do is I'll take the test runner, set it to auto run and drop it onto sidecar. And so that way it's sort of like a little test view that is, is always up to date, which is kind of neat. Or I'll take like a terminal and drop it over there if I'm running a, a server or something. So, but a 27-inch monitor just isn't enough. 
Not enough. It's not enough. Let's see here. Um, I think I got one more thing to talk about before I can toss it over to you. Uh, and it was really, it was really kind of a, a good listen. It was good for me to listen to this. So Elixir Talk just had a podcast recently. I'll put the link to this in the show notes. Uh, from what I, I call the Lumen Four. So the the four the team of four that's working on Lumen at Dockyard. Um, so that's Brian Cardarella. I'm, I'm going to butcher their names. Luke Imhoff, Paul Schoenfelder, and uh, oh, I always forget the last one. I always forget the last one. Hans, Hans Josephson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're from Dockyard, the Lumen 4. Uh, and again, Lumen is uh, the compiler that they're working on to to basically take comp- Elixir and the Beam VM and uh, port that or compile that, basically build a WebAssembly target. Uh, so they're working on that. And this is something that we talked about in our Elixir conf episode that kind of blew our, blew our minds. Um, but it kind of took me by like surprise because uh, I had been talking to somebody else about uh, this this thing called Blazor, which is from from Microsoft. And I guess I didn't read the site close enough, or I just kind of glossed over stuff. And I thought Blazor was actually similar to LiveView, right? So so basically having having sort of a, a JS library that you drop on a page that con- communicates or knows how to communicate to a process for you. Uh, but it turns out Blazor actually compiles to WebAssembly as well from C Sharp, which I thought was kind of interesting. So one thing that I thought was really interesting in this this podcast that I wanted to ask you about or get your opinion about was uh, something that Brian said. And one of the co-hosts of the, the podcast said, so what, you know, what are the reasons? Why are you guys spending money on this and funding this? And one of Brian's points for this was basically to the point of saying the JS ecosystem will never not be turbulent. There's always going to be a lot of turnover and a lot of fragmentation and, and stuff like that. And he's worked for basically many companies in the past where they sort of been burned by a framework choice or a technology choice where uh, the community moves on and the thing's not really supported anymore or developer mindshare didn't pick up. And so this company is stuck sort of supporting this obscure on the fringe framework. Uh, and, and so basically that's one of the reasons why they want to embrace this web WebAssembly stuff because they're already heavily invested in Elixir. And if they can, if they can basically get some sort of interop going with, you know, compiling to WebAssembly that runs on the browser, then that's, that's some, that basically like is a big, a lot of a big piece of overhead. They don't have to worry about, right. They don't have to worry about all the turbulent turnover in the frameworks and package manager changing and all that stuff. So I kind of wanted to get your, your first impression on that idea where Brian says he doesn't think the JS ecosystem will ever not be turbulent. It's really an interesting statement, and it I did make me think, and I'm still thinking about it. So here comes here comes some word salad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, is that true? First of all, is that statement true? Do we think that on an infinite time scale, a JavaScript was never going to settle down? Uh, I don't know. Like, why would you say something like that? Like, what what is it inherently about JavaScript that makes it turbulent? Is it the language itself sucks, and always someone's always going to try to patch it to behave nicer uh maybe so maybe it's an inherent design problem with javascript is it the fact that it's on the web and the web is evolving very quickly and changing and there's standards but nobody follows them and there's this like constant arms race for web technologies like is that really the problem is the web going to keep evolving it's going to reach a certain point where it actually does become stable can you imagine like a major browser release that that it's 
backwards compatible and doesn't break anything like no because that's all we've ever known is is you know ie5 support and freaking i don't know weird stuff i mean i used to have visual basic script vb script in the browser like so i guess that kind of is a true statement you know it's it's kind of built into the community at this point where like like you said they uh they do kind of kind of work on something and a community gathers around it and then it kind of disbands and moves on to the next greatest thing uh and yeah erlang is the opposite of that it's you know quote-unquote battle tested they love to say it's you know born out of this really pragmatic need for stable code that can be fault tolerant and stay up and long lived and distributed and all those great things that the beam and elixir give us but that was like when it was designed by engineers at uh ericsson right like this this is like an internal tool basically uh right and now there's ostensibly i assume an influx of web developers you know of, of elixir developers brought to the brought to the community by by these needs uh that they need and that the language fits and is that gonna also introduce churn uh you know I don't know. There's a lot of assumptions there about the way things used to be and the way they're going to be. I don't think they're necessarily wrong, but it definitely does make you think. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all for trying to do everything not to write JavaScript. I mean, I do it. It's fine. It gets the job done, but it's probably the least fun part of my day. Yeah, those are all those are all good points. On an infinite time scale, do you think that it's going to stay like this? I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, I, th- I think like some of the other, the other points that he was making sort of made sense to me. Uh, and some of the stuff I was thinking about at, when I was working, doing consulting at Octopus, um, thinking about, okay, we're going to choose this technology, whether it's Backbone, whether it's, um, you know, View, React, whatever, and we're going to ship an app and hand it off to them. And then they're going to assume all of the maintenance and all of the upkeep unless they come back to us, right? So they could hire someone, they could farm it to another shop or whatever. Uh, but in thinking about Vue, I mean, Vue maybe is a good example or like not like a, it's not a, a, a case of like a bad situation where Vue's been pretty stable. I think like there's really been in the history of Vue, I think like when they shipped 1.0 or maybe it was 1.0 2.0, really like there's only been a few updates that have come out where things there's like breaking changes where you have to change something. Otherwise your app won't work. If you, if you pull in the new version of Vue, right? Like the, uh, the pipe operator for the, uh, filters. Yeah. Filters, uh, some directives when they went to version 1.0 and then 2.0 changed some stuff up. So really there hasn't been that many changes. Uh, so when, when we use say Vue version, to and and you know we we give hand off that app to that client they're they're sort of just you know they're married to that version of it and when three comes out if there are breaking changes which i don't think there will be but if there are breaking changes then they either have to live on to and be okay with that maybe that's totally fine um or they have to assume they have to pull on the responsibility uh or the money really to to update from two to three right and i think that's part of what he was trying to get at too is you know, we're hand where people are paying us a lot of money for our expertise to build on these applications that should have a, a certain amount of shelf life. Like they should work for the foreseeable future. And depending on on the ecosystem that you're in, that may or may not be true. Uh, so it 
is maybe hard to think about this and I don't think this would happen, but what if people just ditch, like the view team just moved on, right? What if that happened? Then views development could be forked and continued, but the market share would severely drop, right? And then, then it's harder. It would be harder for that company to, um, find people to continue building, supporting this app. So, uh, it's almost like at some point the or a certain some level the argument is sort of like a moral thing like there's so much churn and, and turnover in the JavaScript community that handing over software inherently has a shelf life whereas if we get something that's stable like the Erlang ecosystem doesn't move much we hand something like that off then we're reasonably certain that it's not going to be just busted uh, in in a couple of years and that's sort of an exaggeration because I don't think you know, pulling, you like choosing Angular or React or Vue, like your stuff just not gonna be broken and unfixable in a couple of years. But I think like the undertone of the JavaScript community or ecosystem being turbulent is really what sort of fuels that. Um, it's not even really a fear, but it, it's sort of like a, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's like a, it's, it's a sort risk. of like this. Yeah, a risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I want to walk back on what I said a little bit <laughs> before I'm thinking about <laughs> sure. it. The infinite time scale argument is such a terrible one, but the point, the point being made here is that JavaScript is turbulent and it continues to be for the foreseeable future, right? <laughs> Those are two totally different time scales. Like yeah, yeah, in yeah. the, in my professional career over the next X years, like things show no sign of slowing down. Uh, and so I think that that is definitely a, a valid and a good assumption to make. And if you, you know, not only, not only is choosing a JavaScript technology, uh, risky in terms of like a consulting, uh, situation, but it's also risky if you're doing your own thing, right? If you're in a company and you choose a technology and you buy into it and you sell it, sell it, you know, to your boss or whoever, you know, whoever's managing your, your project, whether it's yourself or someone else, uh, you better hope you <laughs> pick the right thing. I mean, look at look at Phoenix. Phoenix from from the early days was always using Brunch as their asset compilation, JavaScript and style sheets and stuff. And you know what? Brunch was pretty nice. Uh, the config files were easy, had good documentation. Uh, but after a few versions of Phoenix, it was clear that the web was not going that way. Uh, everyone was using Webpack and it was best supported. And, you know, it's not better. <laughs> Arguably, it's worse from a you know interface uh, for developers, yeah, it's it's certainly yeah yeah it requires it's definitely more com- complex in terms of configuring it and setting it up. Yeah, and that was and luckily it was early days enough that they were able to change it without too much churn. But it just goes to show you that you can it's really easy to to buy into the to the wrong technology. You know, I mean, so far we've been lucky with with Vue and it's been fine. It seems like it's going to keep being fine, like you said, until someone gets hit by a bus. <laughs> Yep. The bus factor. I, yeah, I, that used to be something I see all the time about Vue. And uh, Evan would always be like, look at the core team. There's a core team. Uh, I saw that on Twitter all the time. And I guess similarly with Elixir too, like, I don't want to say we're early adopters, but it's certainly different. Like choosing Elixir is certainly different than choosing, say, like Ruby, right, for, for a project. So, that was one question I was asked a lot when I would mention, or people would ask me, like, "Hey, what's powering DK? What like what CMS system are you using?" And I'd I'd be like, "Oh, we're a custom Elixir app." People would be like, "What? <laughs> um, you know, first of all, why not pick something on the shelf? Second of all, what is Elixir? I've never heard of this before. And do you think it'll be around for a while? You know, 
And over, I don't know how long it's been, maybe it's a couple of years maybe now, uh, I've seen more and more e-commerce companies adopting Elixir. Like one of the latest ones is actually one that sort of fit close to home to me because Lindsay's always telling me to go look at this company called The Real Real, their emails. She loves their emails. So she's always telling me to go look at their emails. And lo and behold, one of the Elixir newsletters I get in my inbox, f- top front and center is the re- uh, how the real how the real real or why the real real uh, embraced Elixir, and it's an interview with Jose and and I think the CTO of the Real Real, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I shared it with my boss, and she was like, you picked a good one, you know, because <laughs> I told her two years ago, I was like, hey, I think this is going to be big, and this could be really good for us, and here are all the benefits, you know. Uh, so so far, you know, I felt pretty pretty lucky to have chosen View or like you know, chosen something that I liked that seemed to resonate with other people uh, two times now with you and Elixir. I feel like maybe it could be pronounced the real real. Maybe the real real. I don't know if that makes it easier or harder to say. Ooh, they have watches. Yeah, yeah. But that was that was pretty cool for me to see. I was like, oh, that feels, it feels good. You know, there's more people adopting Elixir and, uh, you know, I just I felt validated. Absolutely, you should be. So I, 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 I sent a message across in the Slack and they're like, oh, cool, you know. I'm I'm really inter- just interested to see where Lumen ends up in terms of, you know, uh, it sounded like from Elixir Conf that they had a lot of work to go just to get the basics down. I mean, they showed us some, some Hello World sample code, which was cool, but I also didn't really understand. This sounded like a lot of technical challenges there, and I, I don't doubt that they're going to solve it. They've got tons of really, really smart people over there, but man, it's still that's still a big question mark to me. I mean, it's so early, but... Uh, it will be interesting to see how that develops and what kind of uptake it has in the community. Yeah, I, I'd recommend giving a listen to that the podcast because they go into a lot of stuff that wasn't really in the keynote, uh, specifically around um, you know community adoption. Like, are you afraid that you know no one's going to pick it up or think it useful or anything like that? Um, another big thing that they talked about on the podcast, which I thought was really interesting, is is uh, you know, how does, how is the Erlang and Elixir ecosystem perceiving this? You know, so they're going to different working groups and trying to, uh, again, I'd have to re-listen to the episode to, I feel like, talk about it more intelligently, so I'm not going to say too much about it, but, you know, that's one of the things they touched on was, like, what is the, what's the Erlang ecosystem perception of this project? Uh, And they did a lot of um, talking about, hey, like, we're not trying to ship the beam itself to WebAssembly, we're re-implementing uh, our version of the Beam in in compiling it to WebAssembly. So they did a lot of I don't know some sort of like you know clarifications and really explaining some of those those things on that episode. So I if if anyone's really interested in Lumen and WebAssembly and and hey is this going to be a viable thing? Uh, what could it be used for? Like the episode really covers a lot of that. It's really interesting too because the Beam and OTP are intrinsically two separate things. I mean, the beam is the runtime and it's also the interpreter. And it's also, you know, the beam is a very overloaded term, but OTP is just, it's literally just a, a, basically a standard library, right? Built on the beam that everyone gets. It comes packaged with the, with the language, but it's, it's just a library, you know I mean? (laughs) Right. Once you get the core fundamentals of the beam and processes and you know, garbage collection and, and all like the, the, the plain old VM stuff working, obviously you want to re-implement OTP, the the parts of OTP that you care about, gen servers and, and uh, system namespace and OS namespace and like all, all those 
things that you've come to rely on, that's going to, that's going to be a challenge too. But I think, I think those are actually, they're actually relatively simple constructs. Like OTP has a lot in it, but they're all very, very simple uh, implementations of things. I mean, gen servers are, I don't want to oversimplify it. I'm sure they're very complex, but, but like there, I don't feel like there's a lot to it. Yeah. And they, they talk a little bit about that and they talk a little bit about how they're approaching sort of like, you know, re-implementing their version of the OTP. Uh, and one, one interesting point, I'm pretty sure that Luke, Luke mentioned this was there's no real spec for o- the OTP itself. The OTP is, o- the OTP is, is itself. It's OTP. So, that's one thing they're sort of struggling with or not really struggling with, but like working through is specking everything out to, so that would they have some sort of, you know, guidelines and blueprints to go along with, because again, you'd have to listen to the episode to get the more intelligent conversation around this, but uh, the OTP is what it is. And so they're, they're, they're trying to reimplement their version of it. And there's not like a solid solidified spec for them to follow, to reimplement it. That's really interesting. The only spec you have to go on is the, the docs, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of really, uh, I don't mean like highbrow sometimes to me feels like dismissive term. I don't mean it to be dismissive term, but a lot of like academic conversation, I guess I could say in, in that episode. And I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I was trying to, so I was walking Watson while I was listening to it and Watson likes to find these green acorns that he's not supposed to have because they're poisonous <laughs> to dogs. And so I have to be on my, my game to keep those out of his mouth because there's a bunch of oak trees on the street where I walk him. So they're all over the place. So half of the the podcast was me listening to it and half of it was me, Watson, drop it! And like grabbing stuff out of his mouth. Uh, <laughs> it's not really productive to no podcast listening. But I it's really interesting because the the problem that it's solving, the high-level problem, which Brian mentioned about you know, reducing churn and giving you the stable platform to build web applications is such a pragmatic business oriented problem, like to, 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 to want to solve, right. It's, it's this, mm-hmm. it's this very high minded idea of like, this would be better for our company, for the community, for the ecosystem, for developers everywhere. If we could do this and sure you can have an idea, right. You can just be like, Oh, wouldn't that be nice if, x but he actually has the access to the resources to the technical people who can actually like take that deep dive and figure out all all that those intricacies because it's it's a lot and you can't just have the idea and be like oh it wouldn't be nice if someone did that or i oh i can see if i can do this like no you can't do this unless you understand how a virtual machine works <laughs> right there's so much there so it's he's in a very unique spot he's using his time and his resources i think very effectively obviously we've seen that with investing in chris mccord and giving back to phoenix and we've already seen you know a lot of stuff come out of that with live view and and uh all the you know presence and stuff uh all that great stuff came out of you know his ability to work on that stuff so yeah i'm really excited to see how this evolves yeah me too and the other like a part of the discussion was again around like community adoption you know like asking how do you think the community is going to adopt this? Like how practical do you think it'll be? And the responses I got were, or the responses I heard were really interesting. Um, so, so one of the responses, again, I think this was from Luke. He was saying, you know, even if people don't really like really grab onto this thing and it grows, like grows in a big way, other ecosystems are 
having this too. So I mentioned Blazor from Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft is spending a lot of money, you know, presumably on Blazor because it's it's like real, it's there, right? So you basically can write C Sharp and it compiles to WebAssembly. It can run on a server or in the browser environment. Um, so there's that. Um, I think there's a PHP. I don't remember the name of it. I'll put it in the show notes, but there's a PHP library that is can, can um, compile one of the compilation targets is WebAssembly. Uh, so there are more and more ecosystems that are sort of getting this sort of c- compile to WebAssembly and run all the places that that's supported. And and so one of the answers was like, well, Elixir should have that too, right? Because, you know, like if we if someone needed it and we didn't have it, then they would have to move away from the ecosystem and we don't want that to happen. So a lot of it from, from Brian's point of view is, yeah, we, we want to fund this because we want to use it in our business and it's going to make us a profit. And, and on the totally other end of the spectrum was like, well, yeah, maybe people like, maybe this is going to be a huge tool. Maybe it's going to be like a base book tool, but other languages are getting this. So Elixir should have it too. It's going to be really interesting to see like which language is the best for it. Like, like maybe one becomes the de facto, like, oh, don't, you know, no one's going to write WebAssembly. I, I don't, I haven't looked at it. I don't really know what it consists of, but if it's anything close to like real assembly, uh, you're not writing that by hand <laughs> to, right. to write anything <laughs> meaningful. So, uh, you know, maybe like just like Ruby emerged as the the language for writing web applications before that it was PHP. I mean, PHP was developed for the web, but like it's a bad example. But what I'm trying to say is like maybe one language becomes popularized by its ability to do web assembly effectively. And maybe that's where people learn about Elixir. Maybe that's, they're like, oh, you know, maybe they do. Imagine someone's first experience with Elixir is entirely in the browser and like, oh, I can write server apps with it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's definitely interesting. It's still hard for me to, I mean, I get practically like, yeah, you could write Elixir and it, and it compiles into WebAssembly, it runs in the browser and you get UI from it. I think like, I think a lot of the moving pieces are still maybe a little bit outside of my grasp because I haven't really dug into it. They talked a little bit uh, a little bit about it on the episode, um, but basically they're talking about how the host is going to expose whatever they want to the you know the the WebAssembly package. So, in the case of a browser, you're going to have access to the DOM API and the JS API and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So, so it's almost like it's almost like um, well, I guess it's like I think the example they used like it was like a reverse node, but. It doesn't necessarily apply to what I'm trying to say, but I guess like when I was listening to it, they're describing like, here's how, here's how you could hook into the browser. But also if you were running somewhere else, that host could also expose, say for example, uh, Arduino, right? So that way the host, the Arduino host could expose whatever bindings someone would need to work with it. So essentially you have, I don't know, A, B, and C languages building to building into WebAssembly and then whatever's running the WebAssembly really just has to know about the host it's running on. And as long as it gets WebAssembly, you're good to go, which is sort of like a universal compile target, right? Yeah, I mean, now what you're ending up with, if you start going that route of giving, incrementally giving WebAssembly access to your system's real resources, you know, file systems, sockets, ports, memory, video card, uh, you know, anything that a normal operating system, a native application needs to access through the operating system, now you've got to build into the browser and have all those applications somehow control access to that. Like you can't just, you know, give all this stuff willy nilly to every website you go to because, you know, I mean, it goes without saying security is going to be paramount here. Yeah. It's going to be come first before anything. But um, yeah, it, it, if it does become this thing, I mean, that 
basically a virtual it's not a virtual machine though it's a bad example but it's like it's like having java the java runtime installed on your computer or something right that's less java is something that you pretty reliably can just like compile and run anywhere and of course no one really has java on their pcs anymore but <laughs> but well, you they're, certainly they're don't gonna have <laughs> you refuse to i will go to great lengths I, I will install docker before i will install java as we learned <laughs> as we learned yes i have my limits sean yeah that's funny. I didn't. I hadn't thought about any of that stuff. But yeah, it's it's very interesting. I don't know. It's it's really interesting to see. There's so many people in this space, and they're all sort of angling for what's going to work best for them. I. I mean, listen. If I could get WebAssembly access to native operating system resources, which I have to do today by releasing an Electron app, just so I can use web technologies to do that stuff. If I can get that all in the browser, and the user just has to click a couple like accept permissions, but dialogues. Oh man, that'll make my life so much better. You heard it here. You heard it here first. RHR is doing RHR three in uh, oh my God. WebAssembly. I've, I've rewritten ugh, the desktop app. Man, started off as a Chrome extension until Google decided to get rid of Chrome extensions on the desktop. Uh, which, by the way, it still functions. You just can't download it or install it, or I can't update it. Then became Electron app with React. And now it's soon to be an Electron app that's just a very thin wrapper around browser anyway doesn't matter doesn't matter the, the 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 point is is that doing this stuff is a pain in the butt and it's hard and it's changing quickly and it'd be really nice to just have that one that one target someday someday yeah and i don't even know like is WebAssembly changing as well like there's a spec for it but i don't know if it's 1.0 or anything yet i i don't even know i assume some browsers support it to some extent i don't know what the compatibility for that looks like currently if it's going to be changing you know are they trying to shoot a moving target too well according to webassembly.org webassembly 1.0 is shipped in firefox chrome safari and and um edge that's what it says that's what it says hey that's just the press release okay yeah i don't know it's a it's a good question i'm, I'm sure that at some rate they that's happening you know because it seems to be a moving spec but yeah i'm just interested to, to see what people i guess really more than anything i'm interested to see what people come up with uh, so now that the voting is open for for this Phoenix Frenzy competition, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in here. Um, so I, I don't think you're signed into it right now. So like I mentioned, there's there's Tetris. Uh, someone built, it looks like a chess game, a chess board. Yeah, someone built live chess. Uh, somebody else built this Kanban board. Uh, there's a Geo Racer, so it's actually like a multiplayer game, it seems like. Let's see here. There is, yeah, lots of games. A regex viewer, um, MIDI. So basically, someone built a MIDI uh, board. Let me go to the project site. So if you're in in like Logic, you open up Piano Rule. You can you can draw the MIDI sounds out. Uh, well, that someone made it in Live View. That's pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, I'm just I'm just sort of excited to see what people do with with uh, with Lumen once it's once it's out in the wild more. Let's make the second episode where we spent the, almost the whole time talking about this. It really is that compelling. Well, I I uh, took up all the time again. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I I've been so busy working. I haven't had time to like think about do anything really new or interesting. So, uh, it's fine. I was just gonna rant about how much I love Ruby, but I can do that anytime. So, oh. <laughs> what else is new? controversial? Yeah, real hot take there. Yeah, controversial take. Well, I guess it's time that time of the episode where. We thank all the listeners for listening, hanging out with us virtually, taking part of the conversation, or we would like you to take part in the conversation. 
so yeah, thanks for listening. And if you have anything to say, if you have any corrections about anything I had to say today, uh, please let me know. We appreciate any sort of feedback, criticism or otherwise. Uh, and if you feel like sharing the show with your friends, uh, that would be awesome as well. Don't share with your family though. I tried that and they got real bored. You can see, reach us at Twitter at DNC show. Sean is Sean Washbot. That's all one word, all lowercase. Sean is spelled S-E-A-N. There's no H. Oh. And I am Shrockwell. There is an H and there's also a C. There's two C's. That's right. Um, show notes and everything we talked about today, that'll be available at dnc.show. Uh, so the podcast we talked about, Lumen, all that stuff, it's all in the show notes. Head on over, head on over to dnc.show to, and check that out. As long as Notion doesn't delete the show notes on us again. That's right. We'll also post them over on spectrum.chat where we're hanging out. You can come say hi and chat with us and have discussions, yada, yada. Check it out. And if you're uh, looking for a new job, if you're looking for green your pastures, there's a job board over at spec.fm slash jobs. And there are currently three jobs, Datadog, reactors so we got some design jobs we got some engineer jobs uh definitely check out the job board if you're looking for something new and as always thanks to spec for having us and putting us out there and uh dealing with our our voice noises i guess and if you're interested in other design and development related shows head on over to spec.fm to see everything they've got going on over there like design details fragmented swift unwrapped they've got tons of stuff over there so head on over to spec.fm and check it out Mikhail always deals with so many weird mouth noises, and I'm so sorry, and I'm very grateful to him for editing this week's episode. This episode was produced by Sarah Jackson. I'm Roman Mars. Oh. <laughs> you listen to other podcasts, do you? No. No, just oh. that one. Cool. Well, I'm going to check out some of these Phoenix Frenzy entries and maybe cast my vote. We should have we made something. Yeah, I should have, could have, would have. Actually, I, still, I, really liked, I really liked your idea for making that destiny helper app that tracks all your quests because you know bungie and all their and all their development know-how decide to let you only track three quests at once on the main screen which is freaking annoying and uh you're usually trying to do way more than those at once so and it turns out bungie has an api for destiny it turns out so because destiny tracker exists right and so i think your idea for a live updating live view mobile app for tracking as many quests as you please would be great and also not good for this frenzy thing because who the heck cares about destiny it's a dead game it's a dead game 260 you know 200 some thousand concurrence dead game that's and that's just on pc it's like it's like two mil concurrent yeah or, or something crazy like that i'll meet up with you on the moon and we can just hang out on the moon while we work on the app i think we should do an episode from the moon yeah we could Live from the moon. All right. Yeah, I guess I'll see you on the moon in in a little, in a little bit. All right. Later. Thanks again to Bloomadora for sponsoring this week. Turn your flat metrics and logs into rich dimensional analysis with the industry's first and leading monitoring integration as a service. Go to bloomadoric.com slash compute for $200 credit towards Google Cloud Platform if you sign up with a free bind plane integration. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first.